Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about infertility. My guest today is Dr. Carolina Sweldo, and before we get into it, the first thing I wanna make very clear is that we are not giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any concerns about your health, please speak with your medical provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. It's the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. And before we get into the topic today, I just want to let our listeners and our viewers know that if they would, please be so kind to leave a review for the Muslim Sex Podcast. Five stars are always welcome and I would greatly appreciate it as well as about the retreat that I'm hosting at the end of May, May 19th through the 21st. And you can go on my link in my bio um, and go ahead and register for that. So thank you again. And I will let Dr. Carolina Sualdo introduce herself. Sure. Yeah. So for those that don't know me, I am a double board certified fertility specialist. So what that means is I am trained, uh, residency trained in obstetrics and gynecology and board certified in OBGYN. And then I went on to do a three-year fellowship in infertility specifically, and I'm also board certified in that. Um, After I finished my fellowship training, I joined a large practice in South Florida. And since 2018, I have been here practicing in Central California, actually, with my father, Dr. Sweldo Sr., and our partner, Dr. Michael Shin. Um, I have been lucky enough to be able to present both at national meetings and all throughout South America internationally um, because I believe that reproductive health is health. This is something that I'm passionate about. I want to empower women by educating them about their fertility so that they understand their bodies and they understand their options. I hope that was a, a helpful intro to the audience. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we know how important it is to have specialists such as yourself um, to refer to as OBGYNs because we can only take care of so much and then, you know, we refer out to you. And um, infertility was one of my passions actually when I was a resident and going through residency myself. So I I have a special place in my heart for infertility. <laughs> so I, I love you. I always tell people, you know, I feel like as OBGYNs, you guys are already dealing with so much and counseling so much. And so the benefit of having a specialist when you're working through your fertility journey is that's all I do. I'm focused. You guys are focused in on all these things. And I'm just like this one niche of this is what we're going to do together. So um, I definitely think that we need each other and we complement each other well. Absolutely, absolutely. And definitely a a sex and intimacy coach fits in very well with your specialty of infertility. So I'd love for you to, you know, basically tell our viewers a little bit about, you know, just fertility and, you know, the best times to conceive and those that are trying to conceive when they should come out and see you as, as a specialist. Sure, sure. So I think I'm going to break that. There's a lot there. So I'm just going to break that down into kind of bite-sized pieces. 
And the first thing that I want to talk about is the concept of ovarian aging. So women need to understand first that they are born with all the eggs they're going to have in their lifetime. And the science available to us today does not allow for the creation of new eggs. So once those eggs are gone, they're gone. There's no reversing that process. We know that women's peak fertility is going to be somewhere in their late teens, early 20s. Now, in today's society, most of those women are not in a place that they're ready to conceive. Most of them are studying or working or trying to set themselves up financially, etc., but we do know that fertility outcomes, so the likelihood of pregnancy, the risk of miscarriage, etc., those tend to stay fairly stable until about age 35. And then after age 35, we do begin to see a very real, a very progressive decline in a woman's fertility. And when I talk about a decline in fertility, what I'm talking about is a decrease in the number of eggs that we have and in the quality or the health of those eggs. So when you talk about a normal, healthy, reproductive age woman, the likelihood of pregnancy at 35 is gonna be about 20% per month. By 40, that dropped to about 5%. And that is age-related only, no other factors. Risk of miscarriage at 35, we tend to quote somewhere in the 10 to 13% range. By age 40, that's 40%. And again, that's age-related risk. So the concept of ovarian aging, the decline in the egg reserve, so the number of eggs, as well as the quality of eggs over age 35, if you hear nothing else from today's podcast, that would be the message that I would want women to take away. So now let's talk about the woman who is now trying to get pregnant. And when we talk about um, trying to conceive, it's really important to understand our menstrual cycle. So the first question, are your cycles regular? Because if they're not regular, guess what? You need to go to an OBGYN. Um, if they are regular and you are getting regular periods once a month, then the next question is roughly how far apart are they? And we count that generally from cycle day one of full flow to your next cycle day one of full flow. Most textbooks will quote average of 28 days, but that can range anywhere from 21 all the way to 35, depending on the female patient. So understanding the length of your cycles, because that's going to help you understand the third critical piece, which is when do you ovulate? So if you're having regular cycles, and if you know when you're ovulating, then you can use an ovulation predictor kit to try and understand when is going to be your peak fertility. That ovulation predictor kit, it's a urine test. It's in any big box store or local pharmacy. It is a urine strip, so it's found in the feminine hygiene aisle. And you basically pee on that strip, and it will tell you, yes, you're ovulating, no, you're not ovulating. Uh, now, in today's uh, advanced technological world, we start to see things get a little more complex. They're looking at high fertility, peak fertility, the different hormones. But truth be told, as long as you understand when you're getting that LH surge of ovulation, which is peak fertility, that's all you need to know. And with that positive, you're going to have intercourse day of the positive and day after. So transition, so I'm sorry, just to recap that. So if you have regular cycles and you understand when you ovulate, using an ovulation predictor kit, you would have intercourse the day of the positive and the day after the positive predictor kit. Now, I want to transition that into two other topics. The first one being intimacy in the relationship. When we begin our trying to conceive journey, or TTC as we like to call it online, um, when we begin the TTC journey, 
a lot of times, particularly as the months pass, intercourse can become very mechanical, very medicalized. It's work. It's a chore. It's a task to achieve an end. And the reason that I like ovulation strips so much is because we can say, okay, we know that the day of the positive and the day after we are dedicated to baby making. So that is baby making sex. The rest of the month, that really needs to be about intimacy and connection. And you can definitely speak a lot more to that aspect of it. But I really try to separate or compartmentalize that sex that is specifically to procreate and that sex that is meant for pleasure, for connection, and for intimacy between the partners. So I think that's really, really important to distinguish. And then secondly, I would say is, If you don't have regular cycles and you're trying to detect ovulation, having intercourse, you know, some um, primary care, some OBGYN well-intentioned may say, okay, have sex every day once your period ends. Well, no, that first of all, that's not healthy for anybody. And second of all, that doesn't necessarily increase your chances. So more sex is not necessarily better in terms of trying to get pregnant. So if you have irregular cycles or you don't know when you're ovulating, that's when it's time to talk to your OBGYN or seek out the help of a fertility specialist. So irregular cycles would be a classic example of when to seek out evaluation um, as quickly as possible. The second thing, so the classic definitions of when to see a fertility specialist would be under the age of 35 if you've been having unprotected intercourse for a year or over the age of 35 if you've been having under unprotected intercourse for at least six months. Now, I will add a few others to that. Um, if you are having very, very painful periods, intercourse is painful, particularly with deep thrusting, and there might be a concern for endometriosis, you wanna seek out help sooner. Don't wait the full six months or the full 12 months. If you have a history of something that could potentially impact fertility, previous surgeries, previous sexually transmitted diseases, previous exposure to chemotherapy or radiation for a childhood cancer. Those are all things that may potentially lead you to seeking out help sooner rather than later. And then the last sort of asterisk that I will tack on there is even if you're young, you've only been trying for a couple months, but you're concerned, I definitely think that being an advocate for your own health and trying to at least undergo testing or have the conversation with your provider, even if that means, okay, at least we checked everything, everything's checking out, we'll continue to try and come back to you in three to six months if things aren't working. So I definitely want to make sure that patients feel empowered to seek out help when they're concerned and not just following sort of that six and 12 month guideline. That was awesome. And I love the way that you broke everything down. I think that that information that you just stated is gold. For anyone that is trying to conceive, you know, knowing when to try to conceive because, you know, just as what you said, right? OBGYNs, you know, myself included, I'll tell a patient that, you know, after your menses, try to have sex like every other day. But just like you're saying, that's you know, physically that may not be possible, right? So to know the best time to conceive, which is around the time when you have that LH surge, when is also the time that the egg is being released is probably the optimal time to try to conceive, especially when somebody is busy or, you know, you have a partner that's traveling or whatever, you know, you may not be able to have sex that often anyways. So I think that's fantastic to know that. And also I think what you said about, you know, knowing when to go and ask for help, 
help with an infertility specialist, whether it's a year if you're less than 35 and you know six months when you're over the age of 35 and not waiting. I think oftentimes, you know, I'll see patients in the office that are saying, like, well, we've been trying and it's been, you know, three years. And I'll be like, gosh, why are you waiting? You know, go, go now, go, you know, the and I think what's also what important what you stated is that um, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you are worried, if you are concerned that, you know, you're just not getting pregnant or you think that something may be off, you may be right. So, you know, definitely go out and seek that help because, you know, that's what infertility specialists are there for. That's, that's their job to help you out and to help you conceive because, you know, that's why you're there. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a perception of, oh, if I go see a fertility specialist, I'm going to have to do IVF. And that really could not be further from the truth. Most of us are really here to educate and counsel. Most of my um, appointments, a, a lot of information, a lot of education. That's where I spend a lot of my time. And really it's about, okay, let's just get tested. Let's just see where things are at. And then depending on you know the situation of each individual couple, we can determine what treatment option may be best for you. Right, right. You know, um, so oftentimes, you know, patients will also ask about like freezing their eggs and AMH levels and things like that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, so this is a passion topic of mine. I actually froze my eggs at the age of 31 or two. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, I have not had to use them, but that is the whole goal. So a little bit of history for the audience is pre-2012, at least by ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine guidelines, egg freezing was considered experimental. And the reason for that is because the freezing techniques we had available to us in the lab were not good for eggs. The eggs did not survive well under those conditions. Post 2010, 2012, we saw a change to the, to the freezing techniques in the laboratory. We went from slow freeze to fast freeze. And what we saw is that eggs now were able to, to survive much better. And typical rates of survival now are somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 85% or even higher in some laboratories. So when we talk to patients about fertility preservation, right? So it's the concept of, I know the concept of ovarian aging. I know that after the age of 35, the number and quality of eggs is going to decrease. However, I am not in a place socially, financially, relationship-wise, et cetera, to have a baby. And so for that reason, I want to explore these options. So really, ovarian freezing, or excuse me, oocyte freezing or egg freezing post-2012 became considered the standard of care and now is practiced regularly in IVF in fertility clinics across the country. And the, the concept is that we are trying to preserve the eggs at their best quality before that concept of ovarian aging begins to take place. When we talk about how do I know how many eggs I have, that is defined by ovarian reserve. So ovarian reserve is looking at egg quantity. And there's three ways that we check that. One is AMH or antimullerian hormone. And that is a blood draw that can be done any time of your cycle. It's a random blood draw. Generally speaking, an AMH over one is considered acceptable. Less than one is considered low. That said, there is a whole sort of nomogram based on age. So I highly recommend if someone's going to order an AMH value, 
just make sure that you're able to properly counsel the patient. The second um, test that we use is a, what we call an antral follicle count or AFC. That's done via transvaginal ultrasound. If a patient is having regular cycles, we tend to do it when they're bleeding because that's when the ovaries and the hormones are at rest or at baseline. If the patient, let's say she has an IUD or she has she's on birth control or whatnot because she's actively avoiding pregnancy, we'll do a random ultrasound. But the idea is to get a follicle count of the eggs inside those ovaries. And the way I explain it to patients is if you think of a chocolate chip cookie, we're looking at the amount of cookie and then we're looking at the number of chocolate chips on either side. So AMH, AFC, which is the ultrasound, and then cycle day two, three, FSH estradiol hormone levels, which are also blood draws, okay? And that allows your physician to know, okay, how many, if we do go through the egg freezing process, how many eggs can I expect for this patient to get at retrieval? Now, with the advent of this new technology, which I think has been a game changer for women in terms of their family building process, um, they're also, so that's the huge pro. There also comes sort of the downside, which is when we test those numbers and those numbers come back low, what do we do? And my argument to that is I think it's still good information. I think it's still helpful to the patient to understand that her egg reserve may be lower than expected for age. The important thing to highlight, though, is that ovarian reserve testing does not predict pregnancy. So if you're 25 and your AMH value is lower than it should be, that does not necessarily mean that you have infertility or it does not necessarily mean that you're gonna have a lower chance of getting pregnant than any other 25 year old. So it's a clear distinction that needs to be made. Now, the reason I think it's important is because those numbers do decline over time. And so that patient may opt or may begin thinking about, okay, maybe my family building journey needs to, maybe I need to start thinking about that. Maybe I need to make different plans than what I was originally planning. Or, you know, I think it's at least a conversation starter and, and not the opposite of what happens now every day in my clinic, which is, I wish I would have started sooner. I wish I would have known sooner. I wish I would have had this information five years ago to make different decisions and have these options available to me at that time. And I deal with that every day in my clinic, which is why I feel so strongly that women need to understand their bodies and need to understand what their options are, including egg freezing. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I still remember my mentor, actually, he said to me, he was an infertility specialist. And this is back, you know, when I was doing residency back in 2000 and 2001 and stuff. And he would say to me, he'd say, Sadaf, you know, as soon as you know, when you want to have a baby, or as soon as you start thinking you want to have a baby, just do it. Right. He said, do not wait because right. that's exactly, that is the biggest regret for most women is that they feel like perhaps, you know, they should have started sooner or that they waited too long and they just wish that their journey, you know, they would have sped up the journey a little bit. And I agree with you a hundred percent is that, you know, don't wait um, because it's so important that the younger you are, you know, the sooner you get evaluated, the sooner you get treated, you know, obviously assuming that this is what you want, right? And then getting help for it so that you have, you know, there's a higher likelihood of you conceiving. Now, right. you had talked a little bit about AMH levels and um, just saying that, you know, below one, right? Below one, you said is uh, not as good. 
right as above one. But I think that's just um, telling somebody what their ovarian reserve is, right? Like how uh, how many eggs they have. It doesn't necessarily say whether or not uh, pregnancy is going to happen. Correct. That's exactly right. Right. And so that's going to depend on the quality of the egg. And then like, you know, I, we haven't spoken about this yet, but also, you know, not only is it just the female egg, but of course, there's so many other factors that go into infertility. And, you know, I'm sure you're probably going to mention in a little bit also is that the male factor infertility, right? So when I was in residency, they used to say it was 40%. Is it higher now? Is it 50%? I'm not sure. Yeah. So before we close out on the egg freezing topic, I think, you know, the one take home message I would love for your audience to have is really about, okay, just because I check my levels doesn't need to free, I need to freeze my eggs or just because I start thinking about pregnancy or want a family doesn't mean I need to do it now because egg freezing is available as an option. Listen, when I was, you know, 31, I was um, fresh out of training. You know, I was just starting a new job in a new city. I knew that this was not, uh, starting a family was just not a reasonable option at that time, but I had egg freezing as a backup where, you know, women 10 years ago or 15 years ago, maybe didn't have that option. And so it's just, uh, it's just understanding, right? It's, it's being empowered in medicine. We talk a lot about informed consent and the patient understanding, you know, their diagnosis, what the, re- you know, what the options are, what the recommendations are, et cetera. So I sort of apply the concept of informed consent to the fertility preservation and egg freezing process. So just understanding that it doesn't mean that everyone, you know, again, coming back to those misperceptions, oh, fertility specialists want everyone to freeze their eggs. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I do think it's important that the patient feel empowered and understand her body and what her choices are. So I'll just leave the egg freezing piece and then I'm gonna shift gears and start talking about infertility specifically. When we talk about the breakdown or the distribution of sort of causes of infertility, generally speaking, we talk about 30% female factor, 30% male factor, 20% both, and then 20% unexplained. That's general, when I'm breaking it down in general terms, that's the breakdown. So the point of that is that male factor infertility is just as prevalent as female factor infertility. So when we talk about a fertility evaluation, if there is a male partner involved, the semen analysis, which is checking the sperm for the number of sperm present, the motility and the shape of the sperm, that is vital to the evaluation of the couple. So when you're doing a fertility evaluation, you know, the patient herself can undergo 10,000 tests, but we always are going to ask for that semen analysis if there's a male partner, because we understand that the prevalence is just as high as in, as in the woman. Sure. No, that's, and I think that's so important, right? Because oftentimes, if a woman is not able to become pregnant, uh, I feel that she often blames herself, right? Without first having evaluated, you know, what the cause is, and it may turn out that it's not even her, it could be, you know, the spouse, or there's something else going on. And like you said, 20% of infertility is actually unexplained. So you don't even know both, you know, spouses or partners may be just fine. But for some reason, you know, they're not able to conceive or it's just not happening. And, you know, that's also something that needs to be looked into. So I think all of these things are so, so important um, when it comes to trying to conceive and having a child. I'm sure in your practice, you know, you've probably noticed what infertility can do to a couple. 
And I'm wondering if you can speak about that a little bit. Oh, yeah, it is. And this is actually well described in the reproductive psychology literature for couples undergoing infertility. And there are a couple different components. So without getting sort of too far into the into the weeds, I want to just describe, you know, they talk about grief and, and we use that word loosely in our language. But grief really has sort of a process to it. Um, and that process is not linear. So, you know, you have the stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. And they all can kind of be, you know, present convoluted and in different stages. And in a, so, so when a patient is going through infertility, they are experiencing grief, right? Because it, it is the sense of despair at not being able to have the child that they so desire. And in an in, infertility couple, that grief is compounded month after month with each period that arrives and no positive pregnancy test. Yeah. So there's a compounding factor to that grief. Mm. And when you talk about grief, we know that number one, it is going to impact individuals differently. So how people process and navigate that grief is going to be different and it affects their interpersonal relationship or their ability to relate to the other partner. So not only is the, from a couple standpoint, not only is each individual trying to digest in their own way, but it's also impacting how they're able to communicate with each other. So there's a huge impact to the relationship and navigating a fertility journey, having to make decisions about treatment, about medications, about, you know, do we want to pursue things like surrogacy or things like adoption? You know, so there's there's so many additional layers that we've never had to think about because we've, we're just not socialized that way. And so it really takes a toll on the couple, which is why when you come back, you know, I'll rewind back to the beginning of our conversation and we talk about you know, intercourse and intimacy as a way to connect, as a way to reconnect or, or to maintain that connection, that communication. I think that's so important in the fertility journey because you're already combating all these other stressors and all these other factors. And so at trying to make sure you're present and you're consciously proactively working on that uh, connection with your partner, I think is huge. So yes, I mean, I have seen, I'm in, I've been in practice now almost eight years. I have seen people get separated. I have seen people get divorced. Or what I have also seen is that, you know, we get to a point and they have differing opinions on the treatment. One really wants to pursue IVF. They want to go as far as they can in the treatment journey. The other one is not open to IVF for, you know, whatever the reasons may be. Um, so, you know, there's differing opinions on how the treatment should move forward. So there's a lot of stressors. There's a lot of factors that are going to become be coming into the middle of that relationship. I am very pro therapy, pro individual counseling, couples counseling. Um, I think that that should almost be a requirement for navigating an infertility journey just because of how stressful it is. They actually, you know, as a side note, they actually did a study on patients going through IVF and compared uh, their cortisol, their stress levels with patients going through cancer therapy and they were equivalent. That's how stressful. Wow going through an infertility journey is. So I think a lot of times because it's a silent disease and it doesn't show manifest symptoms, I think we don't truly have a handle on just how impactful it is to the psyche of both the patient and the couple. Wow, that's so amazing that you would make that correlation or that the study you did between um, going through cancer and infertility. And uh -huh. I think also is the stigma, right, of infertility. Absolutely. 
And, you know, people find that it's, um, you know, perhaps it's shameful, perhaps it's something you know, cultural that they should have had a baby by now and, you know, they haven't. And now they're, they've been struggling for so long and there's not anyone that they can talk to. And it's just, you know, one stress after the other. And I can see why it would be, you know, correlated with a struggle such as uh, undergoing cancer treatment. So that's, it's really amazing. It's something that I never thought about, but you know, it makes I think we're just beginning to dip our toe in terms of really understanding the impact and how to navigate it, right? Having the resources available, having the the referral sources available, I think is huge. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so all the more reason to try to maintain the relationship between the couple and to try to maintain that intimacy, not just the physical intimacy, but the emotional intimacy right. and trying to create things that bring the couple together, right? Where Whether it's like experiential um, things that they can do together outside of just the bedroom, but, you know, perhaps cooking together, perhaps having date nights, doing something that brings them together more emotionally so that they can weather the storm of their infertility journey. So I think that's that's also very important. So I'm glad you bring that up. I think that that, that is huge. Um, are there any, and there's so many things that we can talk about, right? With infertility, obviously there's a reason why it's a three year long fellowship because there are so many components to infertility and it's so uh, nuanced, but are there things that you would recommend to somebody that, you know, or any parting words that you would recommend to somebody who is on this journey and feels like they're alone? You know, is there something that you would recommend they do or seek out? Yeah. So number one, um, you know, seek out resources. And if those resources do not exist in your family and friends, which some people, they just, unfortunately, there's a lack of understanding there. Um, there's a great organization. It's called Resolve. They're a national nonprofit organization dedicated to the infertility and pregnancy loss community. And they have a ton of free resources. They have typically local chapters um, of support groups that you can join virtually or in person. Um, so they're just a really great resource. Um, online, I would just, you know, kind of be weary. Um, some can be a great support system. Some can be, you know, a little bit negative or pessimistic. So you just want to kind of be weary of, of what you know, online groups you're joining. Um, and then certainly counseling, if that's something that you're open to, I would certainly encourage that. I think the, you know, the one biggest thing that I hear from patients is the feeling of loss of control, the feeling that they're not in control of their bodies, that they can't make their bodies do what they want, you know, their body to do. And so really, a, a huge takeaway, a huge thing for me is, okay, infertility is a medical disease, just like thyroid, just like diabetes, just like, you know, any other medical illness in medicine. But we know that the lifestyle component is going to influence immensely on that infertility journey. And so a lot of times patients have been trying, as you said, for two, three, four years, and they'll come to me and the very first thing I'm going to talk to them, how's your nutrition? How's your sleep? What vitamins or supplements are you taking? And so, you know, I talk a lot about the lifestyle component. I use that, you know, loosely as an umbrella term, but that is something where patients can really feel empowered to say, okay, I can't change my infertility, 
but am I doing everything else in my control to optimize my chance of pregnancy? Am I monitoring my cycles? Am I eating? Is my weight, you know, too high or too low? Um, do I need to cut down on my caffeine or, you know, tobacco exposure or whatnot? And that's really a good exercise for gaining back some of that control that is lost with infertility. So it's not meant to replace treatment. Okay, patients still need to be tested and treated, but I do think that it's just as important as anything you're going to do with your OBGYN or with your fertility specialist. Wow, that is a lot of information. And I think that that was really, truly helpful to anyone that was listening to this podcast. You've brought such value to this conversation, Dr. Sueldo. I think that it's just amazing. And I, I love how you put in the nutrition and the lifestyle aspect of infertility, right? I mean, I think with so many things in medicine now, we realize that it's not just the one problem, right? Like it's not just infertility on its own, but it's everything else surrounding it. And what we, you know, often refer to as a biopsychosocial model, right? Like what's going on biologically with you? What about, you know, your mental health? How is that? What about social? Do you have that support? Do you, just as what you were saying, you know, what is your nutrition like? Are you, being exposed to harmful chemicals such as, you know, tobacco and, and smoke and things like that, you know, where are you living? Well, how is that? And so I think it's very, very important to look at all of those things together and not just, you know, the one thing that perhaps a patient is there for, which may be their infertility. So right. I think that's that's very important. But um, thank you so much, Dr. Suelda. I think that it's been so helpful to listen to you and to have an infertility specialist on. I had a podcast on infertility early on last year, but you know, I think that the information that you've brought up today has been so helpful for anyone that's experiencing it. And so I'd like for our listeners and our viewers to learn where they can find you and you know what social media handles you may have that they may be able to uh, follow you on. Absolutely. So first and foremost, thank you so much for being here, for having this podcast. I do truly believe that physicians need to be in these spaces because patients need to be getting real, truthful, vetted information from reliable sources. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing with this podcast. As for myself, um, I am online. I have a YouTube channel. Um, I'm also very present on Instagram. So if anyone wants to come find me on Instagram, in my link in the bio, you'll have a weekly newsletter you can sign up for. In that weekly newsletter, I'm always um, mentioning sort of monthly masterclasses that I'm doing or you know events that I may be um, hosting in person. All of those handles across social, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook, all are my name, Dr. Carolina Sueldo. Um, so it's pretty easy to find. I tried to keep it simple. And um, if you're listening to this episode and you enjoyed it, or if you have a question, feel free to send me a DM. I would love to hear your feedback. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Swald. I really appreciate your time and the information that you gave to all the listeners is truly invaluable. And so we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this was not meant to be any type of medical advice. So again, if you are needing help with your infertility, please seek out your healthcare provider. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.